Hey there folks, Matt Valor here, welcome to War Machine and I think we tagline that now and say the podcast of the Radical Theology Seminar. Uh, This is an episode where Matt Baker and I continue our conversation on Bernard Stiegler's Technics and Time, The Fault of Epimetheus. Uh, This has been a brilliant conversation from my point of view. Um, It's a difficult, unusual book. Uh, It's one of those things that have been on my list for a long time and I just never quite I did start it probably a year ago and just uh, I gave up. So reading this with Matt and being able to chat with him about it has been so helpful to me. I think for both of us, we're not quite sure quite quite what it means, uh, what the implications are. But um, some of the ideas that we're exploring together have been really, really productive. Uh, So, uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy this. This is this is the second episode where we've done this so if you haven't listened to the first one maybe you want to do that um we didn't start recording it until chapter three but uh you kind of get the idea over both the episodes about uh, the content of the book and if it goes all right we'll we'll probably do one or two more of these one thing i do want to say because i did the tagline thing about the radical theology seminar and that that's not my thing so uh, i think i can give this shout out because i i've signed up at the um, acolyte level on Patreon, uh, I do want to give the thing a shout out because I really, if I'm honest, wasn't sure about it. I wasn't sure if I could really commit the time to the seminars. Uh, I've been hanging around the radical theology space, I suppose, for a while and I thought, am I going to learn anything? Is it going to be just too much? And actually, what I would say is I've learned an absolute shit ton. Uh, It's been incredibly well curated. Uh, Readings have been brilliant. There's a good chunk. Had to work hard, but not too hard. Um, Seminars have been really interesting, very varied. Uh, I feel like I've totally got my money's worth. uh, And more to the point, been part of a community of really interesting, really thoughtful, very creative people who have pushed my own thinking so anyway that's my shout out for the radical theology seminar um if you haven't had a look at it yet you can check it out on patreon there's a couple of different levels you can get involved but um, i'm definitely recommending the acolyte level because that's the level that gets you into the seminars you can contribute and participate and you get the reading material i found it hugely valuable anyway uh on with the episode i hope you enjoy this conversation between me and matt baker on bernard stiegler's techniques and time hey matt hey man how's it going going all right how are you doing you've got the covid right i do yeah so i'm sure i'll start like hacking up a lung here and there can't be helped. No, we'll just roll with that. I've been doing DIY. The what? DIY, like do it yourself, home improvement. Oh, yeah. What are you improving? Um, currently, my shower. So I'm not renowned for my DIY. But, um, <laughs> yeah. I have, I, I replaced a kitchen worktop and a new sink, which I feel like was a level up for me uh, a couple of weeks ago. And now I'm just resealing the shower. Whilst reading Stiegler in between, so I feel like a true Renaissance man. Yeah, but you're not doing any upholstery. <laughs> any upholstery, that's great. That is well beyond me. 
you know, I used to do construction, different kinds, general contracting, roofing, plumbing, that kind of stuff. All right. Okay. You know, I know my way around a toolbox and can do some stuff, but you know, it's like anything else. You, you sort of use it or lose it. Right. Like now I'm just, well, it's a combination of things. It's, it's, um, it's just being rusty and not having done that stuff in a while. And then also just being older and lazy and be like, how can, can I just get somebody else to do this, please? Right. I still have a lot of tools, but they just kind of collect dust. And I'm okay with yeah. that. Yeah, fair enough. I'm fair taking enough. like a day to do something that would, you know, take oh, yeah. someone else 45 minutes. Yeah. Just made me think of this story. My dad is infamously bad with repairs of any kind whatsoever. He's just not a handyman at all. And I remember, I don't remember this story myself, but my mom told me about it because we, we started talking about how dad's pretty much useless with a hammer. We lived in this old like Victorian house. It was a uh, pretty old, uh, three stories. And uh, it was kind of dilapidated uh, a bit. And so it, it constantly needed work you know, to help you know, cover expenses. I guess my, my parents would have people stay like an apartment on the third floor. He was getting it ready for someone who was coming in and there was just uh, some kind of thing sticking out of the wall that he didn't really like the looks of. It just, he seemed very unsightly to him. It, it didn't seem connected to anything. And he decided he would get a saw and just hack it off. <laughs> it was some kind of electrical, something electric. Cause my mom said she heard him yell at the same time, all the power in the house went out. <laughs> oh man. And I was like, what bad. the heck? Yeah, but that's my dad. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. The electrics terrify me because of things like that. Yeah. I mean, in a house, generally the norm, normal stuff is one. I don't know what it is over there, but over here it's, it's 120 volt. So you get zapped. It's not a big deal. It kind of, it hurts to get used to it. Yeah, we're 220 or 240. Dude, I don't even know. That'll yeah. knock you on your ass. Yeah. All right, man. Well, um, so Steve, hmm. I, I really enjoyed this uh, this chat. It felt a bit shorter. It definitely was shorter. I was expecting it to go on quite a long while longer, but it didn't. And I was like, oh, good. I sort of took this to be a sort of transition, a uh, chapter where he's pivoting between two parts of the book. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, there was, an in, there was a little introduction to the part two, wasn't there? And then there was the, the chapter itself. Right. And it feels like we've, we've pivoted into the mythology of Prometheus and Epimetheus as yeah. the kind of core framing of part two. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if it makes sense to just kind of connect what's happening here because the first two chapters, very long, very dense, or three chapters, very long, very dense. I guess the source material that he was drawing from and the specific kind of analysis he was doing struck me as very different from what's going on here. And I, Yeah, I agree with that. I had the same thought. I, I feel a bit disoriented as well. So do you feel like a, a re, trying to trace that line would be helpful just to try and work out why we're where we are? Okay. Yes. It's on the journey so far, I think that the... The introduction of Rousseau, I thought the main point of talking about Rousseau, as I understand it, was that he had this idea of a second origin. Am I remembering that correctly? And yes. Stieglin wants to say there's no second origin. And Leroy Guin is doing this 
paleo anthropology of of the kind of emergence, the very fuzzy emergence of the human as a result of technicity uh, or the, the ability to make tools, use use hands, therefore make tools which facilitate speech. Um, and so just on point one from the introduction, nothing can be said of temporalization that does not relate to the epiphylogenetic structure mm-hmm. put in place each time and each time in an original way by the already there. Um, yeah. In, in other words, this is him still, by the memory supports that organize successive epochs of humanity, that is technics. Yeah. So what I understood that all to be is that time for the human uh, is to do with the fact that technicity has enabled us to be beyond ourselves by exteriorizing ourselves. As a result, we now anticipate and therefore we become beings towards death. And his idea of epiphylogenesis, which I'm struggling a little bit with to, to really understand and define, but I think he's trying to say it's not just epigenesis, it's epiphylogenesis, which I think is related to the exteriorization in technicity of being rather than just uh, sort of other types of cultural genetic uh, movements that um, might be described in epigenesis. Yeah. But that's not a, that's not a field I feel really confident in. So I may have completely misunderstood that. But um, that I, I think that it's, he's trying to actually narrate. Okay, here's actually a way that we could understand how this is passed on, and therefore the structure of time emerges. And so then, point two is this kind of analysis presupposes an elucidation of the possibility of anticipation. Um, which is the idea that you can anticipate because you've got technicity as an exteriorization and therefore you can imagine planning to do something. And because you can imagine planning to do something, you've therefore got time in a way that if you were a so-called brute animal, you're not planning in the same way as a human. I mean, I'm still slightly sceptical about that division. And I, and I also am sceptical because it felt like in the early chapters, Stiegler himself was problematizing the distinction between the human and the the sort of rest of the zoological. But, no, that, um, that's that's right, and it's interesting now. And, and as soon as he moves into this mythological register, you'll see the the difference that he wants to make between the animal and the human. Maybe that's something we need to like look out for. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. And actually, in this chapter, I was surprised by that because I thought earlier on he was problematizing that distinction. So you know, maybe it comes back to be problematized again later, but um, that did seem a difference. Yeah. Um, but ju- just the final thing I want to say about that, that intro, Matt, is that the, because he's saying um, the rest of part two, there, uh, point two is such an elucidation is the very object of existential analytic, uh, which should accordingly be interpreted in terms of the question of prosthesis. Prostet- <laughs> Don't do it. I, I, I never even oh. try that word. Wow. I, I literally couldn't say that. But anyway, something about prosthetics. Uh, and I think when he's referring to existential analytic, that's when he's going back to Heidegger, who he introduced right at the beginning, and, and Heidegger's um, existential analysis, which is the sort of psychotherapeutic 
work of reckoning with being towards death. So I think that's why he's bringing back Heidegger in this introduction, which is why then we pick him up in the yeah. chapter that comes. Well, I think that's a good way maybe to like back into this chapter because that Heideggerian analysis, the existential analytic, I think it really relates to, to some extent, what we were just talking about in terms of the difference between the animal and the human. And it gets cashed out mythologically through the story of Prometheus and Epimetheus to make this distinction, as I recall. I mean, it's sort of classic, the classic existential position, right? Man has no essence. But there was this one little um, paragraph on, on 193, like the middle of 193, which I think was like a pretty good summary of everything that you just described from the introduction. He writes, man invents, discovers, finds, imagines, and realizes what he imagines. Prosthesis, expedience. A prosthesis is what is placed in front. That is what is outside. Outside what it is placed in front of. However, if what is outside constitutes the very being of what it lies outside of, then this being is outside itself. The being of humankind is to be outside itself. In order to make up for the faults of Epimetheus, Prometheus gives humans the present of putting them outside themselves. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. And I think that relates to the way Stieglitz sets up Heidegger at the beginning of this chapter because um, he's referring to Heidegger's work where he deals with Prometheus, which mm. is not work I'm familiar with, but his main critique is Heidegger's talking about Prometheus and he forgets Epimetheus, which is ironic because Epimetheus's fault is about forgetting. Uh, and so that's why he then has to introduce this, um, this whole uh, section from Plato where Plato narrates that myth yeah so maybe we should get into it into the the myth there's there's two tellings of this right there's the from there's one that comes from hesiod that's right but the first one is from protagoras protagoras all right so in, in the platonic dialogue of his name protagoras narrates the myth of prometheus and epimetheus in the following terms and there's just like this long it's like a page and a half that tells the story. I don't think we need to read it, but I think the basic idea, I'll give it a go. So when the gods were making all the creatures on earth, Prometheus and Epimetheus were supposed to distribute suitable powers, uh, capabilities to all the different animals so that they could you know, have a happy go of it. And Epimetheus says to Prometheus, let me do it, let me do it. And you can just, you know, you can check my work when I'm done. Prometheus is like, sure, go ahead. So Epimetheus does a very good job. Everyone gets special abilities, so to speak, right? Small animals are are swift. Large animals are 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 powerful. Everyone is able to kind of take care of themselves, defend themselves, feed themselves, etc. And then when it was time, I, I don't know why they had like a deadline, but suddenly that the appointed time came where they needed to release all these creatures into the world. Prometheus, after checking out all the, the good work that Epimetheus had done, realized that, hey, you forgot, you forgot the humans. And so they had no um, attributes that were specific to themselves. In fact, it's this lack of essence, in a sense, or lack of capacity that makes the human. And so they have to make up for it. So that's the fault of Epimetheus, right? He fucking forgot humans. And so then Prometheus is like, well, 
this won't do, you know? So he's, he steals the art of, oh, what is it? No, it's uh, from Athena. He steals the gift of skill in the arts. The, the uh, skill in the arts being um, uh, ten entechnen sophian. Yeah, I'm not sure how I'm pronouncing that, but I think that's it's a techne is the art, so it's related to techniques together with fire, um, right. because uh, without fire there was no means for anyone to possess or use this skill. Right. So that's in a nutshell the story. This kind of cuts against what we were talking about a little bit last time when we we're thinking about the fault of Epimetheus as more ontological in a more Lacanian register. I think the fault here is more like blame. <laughs> it's like he fucked up. I mean, there is this default language as well. Yeah, I felt like he makes a lot of that word fault and default, which he hyphenates. I even wondered if that's a play on words somehow. But um, I, think, I think so. But yeah, I think the fault... Like you say, fault is blame. Uh, fault is also like a break. Yep. And um, the default then, it, depending on how you say that in English, uh, it, because the Latin de yeah uh, de, de fault is like to fault in French de fault. Mm. Uh, I don't know if that if that's the correct pun, but it's it's like two faults. Other default is two breaks. Right. Blame and uh, break. Right. And this default, somewhat paradoxically, right, is this origin that everyone is, you know, scrambling to point to. But again, he'll he'll say, I forget where it is. Well, first he says it this way. Prometheus's fault, origin of the default in being for mortals of the human species, is the doubling up of a fault. The fault of Epimetheus is compensated for by another fault which is the theft of Prometheus, which inevitably engenders the default. And this other section here, the originary duplicity, the doubling up of the first act, meaning the double fault of Epimetheus and Prometheus. Inside this act, in one act, for there were never two origins. There is no origin at all. There is only the duplicity of an originary flaw. Yeah, I, I, I think this is brilliant and um, really difficult. <laughs> I really struggled to get my head around this. Um, but I think that what's important in his narration of it is he turns to uh, Jean-Pierre Vernon, uh, who's done this reading of the two poems of Hesiod, the Theogony and Works and Days. Um, so as I understood it, Vernon's reading was a lot about um, reading this mythology in relation to how it was practiced in the sort of religious cultic life of, uh, of ancient Greek city-states. Um, so the theogony is the sort of tussle between the titans, uh, including uh, Prometheus and Epimetheus, and the Olympian gods. And there's this so-called golden age where humans are like living with the gods. They banqueted next to the gods, which means, according to Stiegler, that humans had not yet occurred because nothing had occurred because the whole golden age is prior to anything that actually happened. I think happening specifically meaning there in Stiegler's term, the introduction of temporality as a result of anticipation. And so it's only after the double fault of Epimetheus and then Prometheus that you get temporality and the human becomes 
uh, separate from the gods. So now food isn't just there at the banquet to be consumed. It's not all come ready made, but actually you have to plan and work for it and you have to do it every single day and everything has to be done every single day. And that's the kind of the basis of time and, um, and of life and, and of being towards death. As you were just talking now, this is something I've been trying to think about for a while of a before and after of an, the impossibility of an origin. And there seems to be like a similar thing that occurs in discussions of cosmology, the contours of the conversations about the emergence of the universe and the emergence of man's emergence into time strike me as extremely similar in that both posit a sort of timelessness that can't necessarily be imagined. And then in theological terms, of course, this gets cashed out as like an ex nihilo mm. situation. There's, there's, there's a, how much do I say it? In an attempt to get a totalizing picture of things, we're frustrated because there's an ultimate threshold. And that ultimate threshold <laughs> is basically the horizon of our own experience. We, there's nothing left to do, but imagine that we dined with gods. Right. That's partly how uh, Stiegler is um, articulating, uh, I'm trying to find the place, later on, Mm -hmm. um, he's basically saying the cultic life Mm -hmm. uh, is crucial because the humans have to replay this kind of uh, originary um, mythological fault as a fall because you, you need to perform the sense of how humans are more than animals. I think this comes back to that distinction in the sense that in the Greek mythological imagination, humans have acquired more. We have the fire of Hephaestus and the the arts of Athena, um, but we are not immortal. And so this play on even talking about the gods as immortal is defining the gods by what they are not. The gods are immortal, and then we are not immortal, which is itself a, a double negative. And so that you perform that. We, we're almost this, but we're not. But we're more than that, as in the brute animals. We, we're living in this sort of in-between space of creativity and technicity that yeah. the space of the gods somehow is necessary to imaginatively constitute ourselves in opposition. But I think in terms of time, that then becomes the just to go back to what you're saying about origins, because it's the imagined past with the gods in which nothing actually happened that comes before the fault. Like you say, you're trying to reach for something that you can't possibly imagine or articulate because it's it's totally outside of experience. Yeah, there was something in there I wanted to kind of pick up on. I think this idea of thinking about the emergence of society as a cultic phenomenon maybe not opposed to, but in contrast to the account where it's either competition, uh, cooperation, survival. I think that is a fine conversation to have. It's just a, a different one that's, that's having here about the emergence of, of the socius, I guess. Right. Mm. And that what he's claiming here is that this emergence is by default, pun intended. I, I'm not sure what the right word is. A, I'm going to use the word theological, but that's not quite quite it. There's a ritualistic center to sociality, and that ritual is it's set upon this fault. And so when people get together in 
explicitly religious settings or from a more radical theological perspective, just settings where when they're gathering around ultimate concern, in a sense, this is what they are reenacting, right? They're reenacting this mythological origin, which never took place, that puts us in relation to the gods, even if it puts us into relation to the gods in a negative sense. I don't know if that made sense. It, it, it did. It did. And I think that the use of the word ultimate meaning, or the phrase, is, um, it is interesting because what counts as ultimate meaning? I think in the imagination of Stiegler's work, particularly influenced by Heidegger, uh, the answer is death. It's the facticity of death that is what creates the scope for meaning uh, because it's what introduces both the kind of expectation and the terror uh, of living. In fact, that, that I think is, um, you know, you read the last line of that introduction. Uh, I've got that here. From the perspective of this myth, exteriorization will immediately call forth socialization considered as the relation to death or as anticipation. And I think that's what we're talking about in terms of, you know, call it religious, call it some kind of practice to reckon with death mm. uh, in, in one way or the other, whether it's covering it over or whether it's fully acknowledging it. It's a socialization that is forced or cultivated or provoked somehow because of the fact of death, which we anticipate as a result of this exteriorization that is the result of our ability to... It, it, in part one of the book, it's the it's the technical ability. Now, in part two, it's the fault of Prometheus um, that we now have this yeah. um, being towards death. I forget if it's Zizek or whoever. Several years ago, you know, people were remarking on how uh, at the height of when you know end of the world movies were were the thing, the way that that phenomenon was usually described then and and, and still gets talked about now is that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine an end to capitalism. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, but this kind of reading is kind of putting that in a new light, like people gathering together to reflect on death in a group setting and the cultic dimension of that and how now that shows up in different places. You know, it's, you still get it in the movies and such, but you get it in like QAnon, you know, mm. And it's hard not to draw the parallels. As many people have pointed out, these are deeply religious movements. So that's just something for me to think about. Yeah, as we go along here, I don't, you know. Yeah, I, I really like that. I, and I, I see the same in, um, say, for example, climate movements like Extinction Rebellion, um, mm -hmm. albeit in, to my mind, a more positive way. But sure. it's still a, a movement that is obsessed with death. It's a kind of death resistance. This is almost sense that there's basically no point. It's too late. Um, you know, we are all going to die. But just because then it might just be possible, uh, we ha we have to do everything we can to still live. That that I think feels to me like the narrative of that kind of apocalyptic movement. Right. It right. So politics that come from those different types of um, ways of processing death, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. There's these different orientations of death that we're talking about are, I suppose there's there's better and worse ones on, on the whole. They're all fucking neurotic, right? You know, it just makes me think of the possible wisdom of a certain reading of 
of Christianity that says you are going to die. <laughs> take, take up your cross. Right. I think it's a different existential outlook that I do find. I do find value in that actually. Yeah. And there's some, um... I mean that makes me think of the, uh, in the in the context of what we're reading about. Yeah, um, yeah bring uh, it back. Heidegger's uh, analytic, which I I know more from my own personal therapeutic experience than I do from reading Heidegger. I was in therapy for a few years with a guy who did his PhD on Heidegger's existential analytic. So I, I learned most of what I know about that from him. Yeah, a lot of that was about the challenge of uh, living authentically in an experience of being that is essentially constantly having to face limits. But yeah, it's interesting what Stiegler is saying about, I feel like he wants to problematize that analytic a little bit. Now I found what I was looking for here. So um, uh, all that is given is a feeling of having to be of a default of being where at one at the same time, a having to be and a failing to be are affirmed. So then Steger is saying, in Heidegger, especially towards the end of his work, this question becomes that of technics. Indeed, Heidegger's question, put from the very beginning in terms of a hermeneutic, moves towards and is already moving within the Promethean question. So the Promethean question, I think, as I understand it, is about the giving of technicity to humankind. And that, But then he says, and yet the existential analytic and the Heideggerian question of time ignore the primordial sense of the Promethean Epimethean figure that Venant's reading has brought to light. My understanding of what he means by that is that um, by bringing in Epimetheus, you uh, bring in this sort of double fault. And so that kind of problematizes the origin. And so as he ends the chapter, it's like the real challenge of, from an existential point of view, is the constant repetition of having to feed yourself, clothe yourself, make your shelter warm enough to live in. Uh, there's this kind of constant cycle, which is the kind of being towards death on a like very sort of mundane. Well, it's interesting because the, the way the way you were describing those mundane day-to-day activities that are necessary for life reminded me of what it takes to, to keep a fire going. Mm. Right? And so there's, there's that sort of Promethean analog that I'm not sure he's making the point that you were just making exactly, or that, that we're making together. But yeah, it's, it's in the making of our lives and the making of an authentic life, we are required to endlessly, as you say, be tending to to our lives in technical terms. And that fire, which keeps us alive, we are also enslaved to, unless we kept serving it, unless we kept feeding it, tending to it, we would perish because we don't have what the animals have, which is like whatever, some kind of essence that allows them to just- Self-sufficiency of some kind. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of time, I think that Stiegler is trying to contrast the Prometheus and Epimetheus in terms of like planning, forethought, and delay. Mm-hmm. I'm not one that normally reaches for the word dialectic, not being a huge Hegelian Hegel fan, but um, 
it feels like there's maybe a dialectic here between planning, delay, and I think Stiegler has this line, yeah, never, so the human is never at peace because peace is the exclusive privilege of immortal beings. And so this being towards death is like, it's not, yeah, it's not a straight line. It's not like time is always advancing, um, but you have to make stuff happen for the purposes of survival, if nothing else. But even the anticipation, which then creates the conditions for speech, means that we start to form communities and form rituals and have a society. And so politics enters in. And this, wow. is, this is what Steve is saying, I think. And so we're doing planning and we get into something that certainly in modern terms we might describe as progress. Things are moving forward. But at the same time, there's delay, there's deferral. And you know, one way to talk about that is the difference, the kind of structure of both difference spatially and temporally. And so on the one hand, time is moving and advancing. But on the other hand, we don't want time to move in advance because the more it goes, the closer we are to death. And so we're delaying, we're deferring, and we're caught. We're always caught in that terror and, ex- and, and sort of ecstasy of possibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you understand this word, elpis? Do you know what that is? I think elpis is anticipation, right? Yeah, expectation. Expectation. So elpis, I think, is what is in Pandora's jar, along with all the ills. Um, That's right. And uh, sometimes it's seen as like a purely bad thing. It's more that, you know, the anticipation of pleasure might be more pleasurable than the event. Uh, the anticipation of disaster might be more terrifying than the event. Yeah. Um, so it's the, it's the elpis that is what really gets us. Yeah, no, I was just, I, I just kind of raised it, I guess, because it seemed related to what you were talking about, about the relation to the future as a sort of zone of indeterminacy, which is essentially time. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I wanted to um, I wanted to mention the word indeterminacy because that's come up for us before in terms of, uh, you know, Karen Barad uses that um, because of because that's a crucial idea for Niels Bohr. Um, but I was also thinking about undecidability uh, gets used a lot because Caputo uses that within radical theology. And I find the difference between undecidability and indeterminacy quite an interesting one because I feel like you've critiqued the word undecidability a little bit recently in some conversations we've had because your point has been ultimately you just have to make a decision. They've got to decide something, which which I really resonate with. But indeterminacy is like you can make the decision, but you still don't know which way it's going to go. And you still don't know what time you're creating or what what place you're going to in the future is going to inhabit because it's uh, because it's indeterminate. Yeah, no, that sounds right. Yeah, I, I prefer that. I, th- I find it a more productive concept. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's, it depends on how it's being used. I know that I've been guilty of conflating the two and misusing them in that way, but um, yeah, they do have this sort of similar quality. But it's it's more one is in sort of epistemological. I think mm. term and the other one is more of a um, the way that one sort of orients oneself towards the indeterminate. Yeah. So what's the point of this chapter? <laughs> what, what are we supposed to get out of this? I did not finish this chapter with any good questions, I felt like, and I, and I didn't really know what the point was. I suppose I'll find out in the next chapter. 
um, because he seems to go through a lot of effort here to do these sort of mythological renderings of the story he wants to tell about technics and so on. And I, I, I don't know what the point is, <laughs> frankly. But yeah, I, do... I, I, I did have a similar reaction, Matt. I, I, I've, I really enjoyed the journey through the mythology right. and I, I enjoyed all the different resonances with different things. And um, I think that the, the idea that society that might not be the best word, but you know, people coming together and uh, the emergence of politics as a result of the emergence of language, which is as a result of the emergence of technicity, mm -hmm. um, becomes something that um, is organized around a being towards death. Uh, yeah. And that this mythology gives us a way to structure mm -hmm. that. Um, I find that quite interesting. I'm not quite sure what that really what that means for where this is all going. No, I agree. I, I agree with everything you just said. And the title of this chapter has has suddenly become more salient to me because it's just so fucking odd. Prometheus's liver. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's just such an odd name. And one thing that I've noticed throughout is that he does give clues about what he's up to, at, yeah. at the beginning, and at the end. As clear as he's going to be about what he's up to in those moments, and so. There's this last little section here. It's like a paragraph and a half. It's called The Liver. Maybe there's something in here that I missed the first time through. I was thinking, let's just take a look at this and see if we can figure out what the fuck is going on. Yeah, sure. I, I was actually looking at exactly the same bit when you were asking that question. So yeah, I, 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 there's something about... So, so Prometheus is chained to a rock. His liver as his, is... As his punishment. For yeah, stealing. yeah, yeah, by by Zeus, and and Zeus sends an eagle, and every day his liver will just get eaten by this eagle. Um, but he's immortal. Which is that's freaking that that is that's some metal shit. Yeah, he's a titan, so he can't die uh, because he's immortal. So he's just going to have to suffer every single day the same thing again and again and again. So what Stiegler says is through this act of Olympian revenge, a primordial melancholy vehicle of every phantasm, of every hypochondria, of every bilious misanthropy will precede as its possibility the hermeneutic community. So you've got people coming together who are trying to make sense of this already consumed by the terror of what might happen. Uh, and in really practical terms, that's where he says, like hunger, the cold, labour and basic cares return each day never more than deferred so you said so the future you, you can put back things you can delay things but they're just coming back again and again and i think this is for me where in the end a lot of this is actually about reframing heidegger's analytic mm -hmm. um because being towards death is having your liver eaten out every day and having to fend off the eagle that's how i described when Cameron, my son, asked me what the meaning of life was, I just told him this story. <laughs> <laughs> okay, wow. And he said, oh, I get it, Dad. Thanks. <laughs> so, this, so that's why you go to work? <laughs> Brilliant. That's pretty much it. <laughs> this last section, though, just the language of it, I think is um, really interesting. And he has this like little, I don't know if it's an aside or if it's important to the point he's making, but he talks about the liver specifically. Mm. Right. Um, let's see. This is the last couple sentences of the chapter. Why the liver? It's an organic mirror in which divinatory hermeneutics is practiced 
in which during the sacrifice, divine messages are interpreted. Do you know about this? Like back in the day, people would look at cross sections of livers and do divinatory readings. Right. You, uh, you uh, no doubt know more about this than I do. I just I'm aware of it. I've never I've okay. never I've never partaken of the dark art myself. Okay. <laughs> You've and just done is, more magic research than me, that's all. The point is here, he says the liver is the organ of all humors, of feeling of all situations, because it is the seat of the feeling of situation. I don't know why they're saying it is, but it's also the mirror of ceaseless mortality, which never occurs, of the body and the heart, the mirage of the spirit, a clock. Its vesicle conceals those stones that secrete black bile. Yo, that is some metal shit. That is some black metal shit. (laughs) It's an incredible way to end a chapter, isn't it? It is. He's doing a little bit of mythopoetics at the end here. Yeah. I I find the line interesting that the liver is a mirror of ceaseless mortality, hyphen, which never occurs, hyphen, of the body and the heart. Sorry, for all those uh, writers out there, it's not a hyphen, it's an M dash. When he uses the word occurs, I'm immediately thinking about the reference to the golden age where nothing is occurring. That, that's how he frames it. You know, you eat and drink and whatever. You never have to do all this like day-to-day making of your stuff um, or you know, keeping yourself warm or whatever. It's only after the double fault that things are occurring um but then i don't know why a liver is a clock it's saying it's concealing those stones that secrete black bile i'm not sure if that's like an explanatory or like a hidden thing that you sort of is like the expose well i i can sort of understand how you can refer to as i feel like we're really getting into the weeds on these couple sentences but we might be i'm fast that's how it ends so you feel like you're trying to it makes yeah there's something there's either something really important here or he was just kind of like I'm just going to say that something yeah. provocative here, yeah, which I can appreciate. But, you know, like I can understand how you think about a liver as a clock because of the reference to secretions. Mm. Those happen in the liver, as I understand, in a sort of not only a regulative, but a regular way. There's a sort of regularity of flow. Mm. Um, the reference to black bile, bile is stored in the liver, right? So, yeah. But what it's is made, this? made in the liver. Dad. Yeah, what's up, buddy? We're talking about livers. You please get me for birthday game. Yes, I will, but we need to take a bath first. Okay? No. Well, then nothing's happening until you take a bath. Okay? Because you're dirty and you stink. I won't go. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't think I have anything else to say about liver or anything else right now. I know. That's good, Matt. I, it's, I, it's, it, what you said about the regularity of secretion and that as a that makes sense as a as a clock, like it's is but it, but mortality is not occurring, I think is the point because it's like it's it still goes, it's it's ticking away, ticking away. But you're, ah. still, you're still living, you're not you're not actually dead yet. Well, and the other thing is bile is essentially toxic it's a, it's a poison there's you know there's there's a reason it's clearing it out maybe he's just kind of he's just riffing on the liver the promethean liver thing whereas one is giving this sort of the the traditional account where the evil comes and eats your liver every day it's like well yeah that's true but the liver itself 
has to go through this fucking thing every day of ridding yourself of poison. Um, hmm. um, and it just has to do it all over again. And that in itself is, could be marked by the passage of time or something like that. I don't know. Hmm. Whatever. I wonder if he'll talk about Zeus's testicles next. <laughs> That's my closing joke. That's your cl- good. Well, it was good. I enjoyed that. Um, I've really got a lot out of this book. Yeah, it's fun. It's a great read. Remember you asked me the first time we got together, like something along the lines of, after we read the first chapter, maybe, and I forget how you asked it, something along the lines of, is this change how you think about things? And at that right. point, I was just like, no, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. But I have noticed that there have been times where, and I'm not sure what the upshot of this is or why it's important. But for example, I went, I recently was on a flight to San Diego and I'm looking at all of the things that I was surrounded by, not so much as things that were, were separate from me, but that I, was, I started thinking about how am I constituted as a creature by the fact that I'm flying in this aircraft right now, mm. right? What, what does that say about me as a person? What does it say about this group of people? And can we really think about these two things separately? The line started to blur a little bit for me between human airplane. And that was kind of an interesting subtle shift. The other thought that's occurred to me a couple of times is like, you know how when you meet somebody, there's this sort of standard thing. You start with your name and then you go to, what do you do for a living? And I think there's something to be critical of that in that, you know, it's like, oh, tell me about your place in society. Tell me about your prestige, whatever, your success. I think there's perhaps another reason why it's really important because when you ask someone what they do, you can get all kinds of information about that person from that response, right? Somebody says, I'm a plumber. Suddenly, this person is understood to be in a relational field with tools and pipes and the the things that you put your hand to. So I think like maybe there is something really important about that question like, hey, what do you do? You know? Like, what is your particular relation to technicity? <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. And nobody's phrased it that way or asked it like that, but that's just kind of what occurred to me. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. I found it's, this has changed my thinking in some similar ways. Um, I, I definitely feel a lot more aware of my relationship to the stuff, which mm-hmm. I've been thinking about a lot anyway, but I think not in terms of technicity. Mm-hmm. That's been interesting. And also, I think thinking about time and how time is constructed, which I've also been trying to think about in different ways in terms of temporalities of progress or not. But I think the idea of temporality itself being something that even is possible or necessary as a result of technicity is a really completely different way of imagining the world or imagining why we find ourselves where we are. But I don't think I quite know what to do with it. Yeah, it's the same way I feel about the book. I'm not quite sure what to do with it, but it's mm. it's it's very interesting. Anyway, cool. All right, man, I got to run. Um, good to see you as always. Yeah, you too, Matt. I hope you feel better soon. Thanks, man. Talk to you soon. Yeah. All right. Take care. Bye.